Uh, welcome. I know it's a frigid, cold morning, and so we're thankful that you're here with us. Uh, whether you're visiting or, or a longtime member, we're glad that you're here, especially not just to, to gather as God calls us, but today's actually a really neat Sunday um, as we go into the preached word. And as I close with God's word this morning, we're going to actually be uh, able to commission and install uh, Jenny Kwok as deaconess of our church this morning. And so it's really exciting. Yep. So uh, look forward to that. And then for our kids especially, there'll be a cookie cake outside to celebrate Jenny and just what God has done through her and through our church. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to, well, you can turn. To, we're going to look at two passages, John 13, verses 34 and 35. And then also 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. As we look at the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Uh, just to refresh you all from last Sunday, uh, we looked at what the fruit of the Spirit is. And I just want to remind us of these four aspects of what we want to be able to hold on to as we go through these next nine weeks on the fruit of the Spirit. First, remember that it is singular a singular collective and not fruits, right? So it's not like nine different diamonds, but it is nine facets of a diamond. Second, it is the Spirit's fruit. It's not us. It's not something that's born out of us. It's not because of our experiences growing up. It's not because of our personalities, but it is outside of us. As a Spirit resides in us as followers of Jesus, the fruit that we bear is the Spirit's. It is Christ in us. Third, it's describing character and it's not rules or behavior and then lastly it's outward focus right it's not something that gives us comfort although it might but ultimately we have this fruit of the spirit we bear it so that we might be able to bring that kind of life bearing uh restoration and redemption in those in our communities so that's countercultural to what we experience right with the works of the flesh and so as we think about the fruit of the Spirit, remember it's, I know some of you I heard last week because of my CPAP illustration. First, I heard that I'm old, which is true. I'm getting older. Uh, but secondly, it is not CPAP Awareness Month. I heard someone say that. No, we are using this illustration to remind us it's nothing that we do. We abide in Christ. As we put on, Christ gives us the Spirit. And so it's nothing that we do, but as we abide with Him as we follow Him, as we look to Him and gaze upon Him, the fruit of the Spirit that is promised in us will continue to grow and mature in us and ripen in John Stott's prayers, if you remember. The fruit of the Spirit ripens in us. And so with that, I'm going to invite Sean Kreitz to come on up. He's somewhere here, right? Yeah, there we go. Sean's going to uh, read these passages for us. If you want to flip back and forth, we have it on the screen that you could follow along. Um, but let's give attention to God's word as we hear from John 13 and 1 Corinthians 13. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sean. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word to us and for the fruit that you have promised that bears in our, in our lives. And so as we now delve into this first aspect of love, I pray, Lord, that you would not just um, challenge us, but that, Lord, you would encourage us to be people as we abide in you, that the love that you have for us would be shown to the world 
to our enemies, to our neighbors, to our families, to our coworkers. Lord, do that good work in us and through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, I got to sit in on a doctor of ministry class, and Mark Demise, who's also a pastor down in Arkansas, gave a lecture. And one of the things that he talked about was the He Gets Us campaign. I'm sure many of us are familiar with it. Uh, it, was on, it was on during the uh, NCAA football championship game, but it began, originated last Super Bowl, if you remember. And I'm not here to argue uh, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm sure some of us might be conflicted with the whole campaign itself. But what I want to highlight about this campaign is how it actually originated. How did this campaign even get going before it was aired on Super Bowl Sunday last year? And what I want, what we need to see here is that these people, long before the commercials began, leaders and pastors, Christians, had this question. How did the greatest love story become associated with hate? How did the greatest love story, speaking of the Gospels, of Jesus, who came into our world, who died for us, who rose from the grave, and when the worst was known about us, still offered his love to us, how did that become associated with hate? As they began to do an extensive research, what they found out was that 80% of American adults were open to discussing Jesus and Christianity. And of that 86%, they also had a very favorable view of Jesus. Meaning when you, if you as a Christian brought up Jesus to your coworkers or to your neighbors, they would desire in a very favorable way a discussion about Jesus and have a very positive outlook about this man, Jesus. But only 11% had a favorable view of Christians and the church. If that doesn't hit home for you, do you know what percent, uh, what other percent of 11% of Americans also have a very negative view of a certain uh, group of people? Congress. That's what 86% of Americans hold with us. Their view of Congress is the same of Christians and of the church. And the three primary reasons for this is because first, Christians don't speak or act or look like Jesus. Second, they often think, or Christians often think more of their personal interests rather than the interests of others. And third, churches don't reflect what is otherwise believed about Jesus. This is our cultural moment. That is how the greatest love story has become associated with hate. Now, I could stand here and we've talked through these things, whether it's through Second Saturdays from the pulpit, but some of it is unfounded. But there are reasons why, right? Over the last five years, whether it's through COVID or with racial relations, there has been a lot of negativity of the church, abusive, abuse of power, and, uh, and so forth. There are so many reasons why 11% have a favorable view of Christians and the church. As we just heard Sean read for us, 
How will people know that we are disciples of Christ? By our love for one another. And if love is one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, how do we continue to live out our lives in a manner that isn't associated with hate, but rather love? And so briefly in our time this morning, what I want to do is look at what love is not. And then secondly, what love is. And just a brief and just a few applications of what we can actually do to see whether we are people of love or not. So first, what love isn't? Maybe you've heard, maybe you've discussed in in classes in college or in high school, but a lot of times we kind of reflect on this question of, well, what is the opposite of love, right? What is the opposite of love? And some people will say hate is the opposite of love. Others will say indifference is the opposite of love. Well, the Bible also gives us a, a viewpoint of what the opposite of love is. And here we see that it is fear. In 1 John 4.18, this is what we see. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The opposite of love from the scriptural standpoint is fear. And when you think about fear, it's a natural response to danger, right? It is for self-protection, self-preservation. In a dangerous situation, fear causes us to be able to run away from that which might cause us pain or harm or, or self-infliction. And we can, be, we can actually be afraid of failure, rejection, loss of power, and shame. And though naturally there is a positive bent towards fear in being able to provide life and not death, there's also some detrimental aspects to fear. Fear prevents us from loving others because of fear of rejection, fear of guarding your own or wanting to guard your own heart, the fear of losing whatever we fear we would lose, whether it's your reputation or so forth. I think about this aspect of how fear can be so detrimental. Think about COVID, right? And why were people, especially Americans, so against wearing masks. It was because it was this fear of the loss of their individual rights. I don't want the government to take away my freedom. And so you cannot tell me to wear a mask. And what does that fear do? Well, it causes us to prevent us to love those that are vulnerable, that were vulnerable, the elderly, the young. Another, another thought of how fear does this is when I first got married to Hannah, one of, our, one of our biggest fights early on was when she kindly, and I, and I really mean it, very kindly and sincerely said, Dan, I wish we would pray more together in the evenings. And because of my fear of insecurity, my fear of failure, my fear of becoming like my dad, what did I do? My fear wanted to create as much distance as possible, and so I lashed out. I got angry. Instead of love, which was to listen and to engage and to be able to do what she actually wanted to do. You see, that would have been love, but, but fear drove me to shut down and shut her down. 
or thinking about my children or my growing up with my siblings. There is such a fear of rejection from your parents, right, kids? Sometimes you don't think that your parents will love you because of X, Y, and Z, or because you did this, or you think you're a bad person. And so rather than, rather than getting rejected by your parents, what do you do? You reject them first with harsh words or by saying, I don't like you. Why? Because it's easier to be able to stay, have people who love you stay away from you to get, rather than getting hurt, to hurt others. This is what fear does. It's the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the, the fear of all of your insecurities that prevent us from love. And that is why we see biblically that the opposite of love is fear. To love and be loved is such a vulnerable thing, isn't it? Whether you're dating, whether you're in a relationship, whether it's even your best friends, to be vulnerable is so scary. The fear of rejection and loss and failure closes us up. It makes our hearts really hard and impenetrable and unable to love and be loved. Let me read you this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Four Loves. This is what he says, and this is what I think summarizes well what I'm talking about. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. Rather, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Fear is the opposite of love. And this leads us to these other unhealthy aspects of love that we read in 1 Corinthians 13. I know this passage is used a lot in a romantic way, right? Weddings, you'll hear this passage uh, spoken about. But this isn't a romantic love. This is actually God's love for his people. This is God's beautiful, committed love for us, for the church. And what we see love isn't, and when fear is the consuming aspect of our hearts, what do you get? You get envy. You get boasting, arrogance, or rudeness, insisting on your own way, being irritable, resentful, rejoicing when things go wrong for others. We can relate to that, right? To sum it up, it's, it's this self-centeredness. It's this inwardness. It's about yourself. Self-preservation is about what I get from others. It's possessive. That's what love becomes. But we see here another way. When fear doesn't rule us, what does love look like? And it's the opposite of what we just read. It, it's not envy. It's not boasting. It's not arrogant or rude or insisting on your own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It actually rejoices for others when they're doing well. But he begins by saying, Paul says, love is patient and kind. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. 
Now just think about the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And you see the most beautiful picture, the greatest love story of all, right? Let me just give you three aspects. First, before the foundation of the world. Then God's love for Israel, his people. And then ultimately in Jesus, we see this beautiful story of love. Now think about the foundation of the world in Genesis. Before there were planets or galaxies or cosmoses or even darkness. Before there was even darkness. Who existed? It was God. God existed. What did God do? Well, there's not a lot of things we know, but Scripture actually tells us some things. In John 17, verse 24, this is what Jesus says in his prayer. He says, Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. Meaning, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there was perfect union and love for one another. God's existence was bliss. There was no need. There was no deficiencies. And because of their nature of love that was other-oriented, not self-oriented, what happened? God and being loved created other, not because of any need, but because just because of God being love, He created. He created the planets. He created the galaxies. And in His pinnacle, what did He create? He created humanity. He created you and me. And He made us in the image of God who is love. That is absolutely wonderful and beautiful. And it was the most sacrificial thing He has ever done. Because in creating us, Guess what we did? We rebelled against him. Genesis 3. Sin enters into our world. And yet God, in his love for his people, what does he do? He commits himself and promises to love his people forever. And this is where we see Israel. He chooses a small little nation and loves them. And it's this steadfast, gritty, messy love. Let me just read for you how messy that was in Deuteronomy 7. And I have it on the screen for you. But this is the love that God had for his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's love not based on anything that we did, but rather actually because of their own failures and their sin and rebellion against God, his love for them was because of his promise. And he stayed the course. And he loved them till the end. It wasn't because they were great or not, not because they, he needed anything from us, but he chose to love us because he wanted to love his people. That's the kind of love that we see throughout Scripture and ultimately, we see that in the person of Jesus, don't we? Jesus was ultimately God's commitment of showing his love through a person, 
Love isn't just a commitment, but it came through a person in his son. Love that God has for us is sent through his son, Jesus. When we were unlovable, when we were his enemies, when we were in rebellion, undeserving, what did Christ do for us? He died for us. He gave himself up for us while we were yet sinners and enemies. And that's why we are to gaze to Jesus. We're to look to him, abide in him, read of him, be in relationship with him, and we begin to understand the immense love that he has for us. You replace love here with Jesus, and it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus never, Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. That is the wonderful story that we get to be able to experience every single day of our lives. We have to remember what he has done for us. It's because of his love for us we are able to love others. This is the greatest love story of all time in history. And that's why he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. While our love fails, Jesus' love never fails. And as we are secure in his love for us, when we set our eyes on him who casts out all fears, and we become vulnerable because of our security in Christ and his love for us. When the worst is known about us and he still loves us, guess what that does? It frees us. It casts out fear and then we're able to love others in the way that God loves us. That's why we can actually be vulnerable. That's why we can actually take risks and not protect ourselves because Jesus casts out all fears in what he has done for you and for me. And so, what does this actually look like then? It's one thing to just say, okay, I'm going to try to love my neighbors and try to love my enemies and try to love those that have wronged us. I'm going to try to love my kids even though it's really hard. I'm going to try to love my spouse or, or love my significant other or my best friend at school who's hurt me. But here's two just diagnostics that I think that are helpful for us to think about. If love is truly resounding in our lives and in our hearts. First, are we people of forgiveness? Does forgiveness mark us? Jonathan Cruz, in his book on the fruit of the Spirit, said love is gracious in that it gives. But love is also merciful in that it gives to people who do not deserve it. Are we people of forgiveness? Do we forbear? When someone has wronged us, are we able to forgive, not because it comes from our own strength or abilities or someone told me to forgive, but because of what Jesus has done for me? I can then now love others and forgive them for the wrongs and the ways that they have hurt me. Are we quick to forgive? But secondly, are we going to the invisible? Are we going to those who are orphans and widows and aliens and the poor? 
Because if we are people of love, love will actually move us there. It's easy to love people where you know you'll get something back. But to the invisible, there's nothing that they can give you in return. And are we going to that place to care for those who cannot give you anything in return? Does our love take us to the invisible? I think those are just a couple of diagnostics that help us to be able to say, are we being filled with the Spirit? And are we people of love? As I close, I want to just share a story that I read from J. Kim. I alluded to him last week in his book on the fruit of the Spirit. But he shares about how he got in this huge fight with his mom. He's Korean-American, and so his mom, who's a single parent, also grew up in Korea and moved to America to give him a better life. In high school, he got in a huge, huge fight. And so he was cursing at her, saying horrible things to her. And he just stormed out of the house. And this was back in the 90s when there was no phone. You know, you didn't have find me. So his mom had no idea where he went. But he ended up going to his friend's house and stayed there for a long time. And, and his friend's mom was like, does your mom even know you're here? And so his mom, his friend's mom calls her and his mom comes and picks him up. And on the drive, it's just complete silence. He's still angry and he's still fuming. But when they get home, this is what he, he writes. As soon as we stepped in the door, I went to my room and braced myself for what was to come. My mom was furious, and I knew it. She still hadn't spoken a word. I heard noise coming from the kitchen, followed by a familiar aroma. A short while later, my mom walked into my room and quietly asked me to join her at the dinner table. A meal was laid out. We sat down, then a simple invitation. Eat. So I did. The silence continued. I kept my head down and tried to ride out the tension, eating quickly and hoping I could get back to my room in one piece. My heart was pounding, and I was consumed by a sort of primal desperation for self-preservation. Then my mom spoke in Korean, her native tongue, Jay, you are my son. No matter what you do, you will always have a seat at this table. There was a clarity in her eyes and a warm conviction in her tears. In an instant, my desperate longing for self-preservation and protection vanished, and I found myself transported to the deep baseline core of my identity, that of a beloved son. Self-centric despair gave way to love. I stood up, tears in my eyes, and hugged my mom. At this point, I was already a little bit taller and a little bit bigger than her, physically anyway. And even as my arms stretched wide around her small frame, it was her love, wider than east is to west, and deeper than north is to south, that covered me. Church, love casts out fear because our identity is secure in Christ. We are brothers, we are, we are sons and daughters of the King. And when love casts out all fears and when when the worst is known about us and he still offers himself to us, how can we not then go and love others in the way that Christ has loved us? May we do that each and every single day as we go to the places that God has called you this week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that we are your children. and Nothing can ever, ever change that. 
And so, Lord, I pray that as you transform our hearts, as the Spirit transforms our hearts, Lord, I pray that our love would be able to go out as far as east is to the west and north to the south, that we might also love others as you have loved us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.